G'day, g'day. My name is Ravi Naya, and welcome to the December 2020 edition of A Techno Legal Update, a podcast bringing to you vignettes from the intersection of law and technology, and maybe a word or two about sport. Okay, those of you, those of you who know me well, it's, it's going to be more than a word, but anyway, moving on. Um, folks, it is so good to be back uh Back on the show, um, obviously, as I said, in August, um, I had to take a break because of uni, but now that uh, uni is off for the year, here I am, back and kicking. So, folks, how are we all doing? I hope, you know, we are, you know, winding down for Christmas or managing to take some time out for, for Christmas. Uh, folks, um, if you are in my town, Sydney, uh, I hope you're all, you know, taking care of yourselves, hanging out with family, masking up and following the local health guidelines. Uh, we will get through this, come what may. Um, on a on an even brighter note, uh, how about the cricket? You know what a comprehensive win by the Australian cricket team. But you know I am a purist, and I was disappointed that the Indians, you know, really didn't put much of a fight up in the second innings. And that's all I'm going to say because I don't want to sound rude. So anyway, to admin. This show is now a fully independent production by me, Ravi Nair, in my personal capacity. Uh, it is no longer affiliated with New South Wales Young Lawyers or indeed any other organisation at all. Also, it's December, it's Christmas, so I have decided to shake things up a bit. And uh, I have the pleasure of being joined by Mr. Theodore Totsis uh, as a guest co-host uh, today. Uh, Theodore is a law student from the University of Wollongong. So in this regard, the episode covers two stories. I will be covering the first and Theodore the second. And folks, uh, just a disclaimer, all views expressed in this episode are those of the speakers alone and do not reflect those of any organisation which the speakers are or have been affiliated with in any fashion. So fair winds and following seas, folks. Let's get stuck right in. Our first article comes from Raphael Sata, Christopher Bing, and Joseph Men at Reuters. Hackers used solar winds dominance against it in sprawling spy campaign. So the hackers who breached the American company SolarWinds used their target's market dominance to supercharge an alleged global espionage campaign against its clients. Based in Texas, uh, as a bit of background, SolarWinds has been a leading information technology company since its entry into the market in 1999. It is a significant provider of computer networking monitoring services to key members of the US private and public sectors. This significance is writ large in how, per its 2020 annual report, which is how I will refer to its annual report for the fiscal year ended 31 December 2019, the company had over 320,000 customers as of 31 December 2019. The relevant category of SolarWinds software in this breach is the Orion Software Platform, or Orion. Like other products, Orion contains not only network uh, monitoring tools, but also tools enabling users to automatically restart monitored services when they go down. Hence, this software is likely running 
on a customer network's most critical parts. These include the network's authentication and Active Directory servers, uh, which are critical because they manage the identities of users on the network, determine user access privileges, and modify other systems' configurations. One should note also the financial significance of Orion for SolarWinds, in that for the nine months ended September 30, uh, 2020, Orion products generated around $343 million US dollars in revenue for SolarWinds, almost half of the company's total revenue. To flag as a general matter, SolarWinds counts managed service providers, or MSPs, as clients. Per the US uh, Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA, MSPs are businesses that remotely manage their clients' IT infrastructure, thus generally having, quote, direct and unfettered access to that infrastructure and potentially storing their clients' data on their own internal MSP systems. CISA thus considers that an entity's using an MSP can increase the entity's attack surface for cybercriminals and nation-state actors, that's from CISA, given that by compromising an MSP's authentication credentials, these threat actors can, quote, move bidirectionally between an MSP and its customers' shared networks, enabling the attackers to have persistent access to customer networks as well as easy obfuscation of MSP and customer security controls. In its 2020 annual report, it is worth flagging that SolarWinds acknowledged its dependence on its technological infrastructure to market its products and serve clients, rendering it vulnerable to attacks by, among other actors, quote, sophisticated nation-state and nation-supported actors. The company notes the growing number, intensity and sophistication, that's a quote, of uh, actual cybersecurity breaches and attempted breaches more generally, and the greater geographic spread of threat actors. Such is the evolution of attackers' uh, tactics, techniques and procedures, or TTPs, that these can be left unidentified before their deployment and solar winds may be unable to protect itself against them adequately. Worse still, attackers may remain on solar wind systems for a while and, quote, therefore have a greater impact on the products uh, the company offers, the proprietary data contained therein, and ultimately on our or its business. As the following analysis will demonstrate, these risk factors were quite portentous, uh, given the nature of the attack and how long it went undetected for. These facts can also be reflective of the general cybersecurity risk profile for organisations that can be valuable targets for committed adversaries, such as nation-state groups. So, the breaches in question are of the update mechanism for Orion and SolarWinds internal systems. The attackers seemingly hijacked the mechanism through the Orion software development system to, develop, to deliver, rather, a Trojan, which is a type of malware, to Orion users. The Trojan has been dubbed Sunburst by cybersecurity firm FireEye, and the overall attack is known as a software supply chain attack. So this sophisticated hijacking seems to have occurred in March 2020, and uh, so-called Trojanized updates were pushed out to Orion product uh, users between March and June 2020. 
The Trojan in question was built to remotely control machines running Orion software, obviously, namely after the relevant update or updates were installed. One should note that this Trojan would wait up to 14 days before communicating with the attacker's command and control or C2 server as an operations security tactic. Once the Trojan linked up with the C2 server, it could give the attackers full control over servers running malware-laced Orion software. More seriously, these servers would include the network's authentication and Active Directory servers, potentially allowing the attackers to thus do almost anything they want in the networks of Orion users, since they can grant themselves any access privileges they want. Concerningly, Microsoft's analysis claims to show that even if the Orion breach is remedied, the attacker may have persistent access to target networks. That said, SolarWinds said in a 17 December filing with the US Securities and Exchange Commission, or the SEC, colleagues in the industry have discovered a, quote, kill switch that will prevent the malicious code from being used to create a compromise. The news of the breaches in question arose alongside the breach of the US Commerce, Energy and Treasury Departments and of Microsoft, which notified more than 40 of its own customers who were compromised. The SolarWinds attacks were not identified before cybersecurity firm FireEye, a SolarWinds customer, believed its own recent compromise was through SolarWinds software, reportedly confirming this to security journalist Brian Krebs. Per filings with the SEC, SolarWinds CEO was advised of the vulnerability in Orion, which stemmed from said attack, on 12 December. The company then, of course, discovered the attack. SolarWinds considers this, quote, likely the result of a highly sophisticated, targeted and manual supply chain attack uh, by an outside nation state, but the company stressed that it had not verified the identity, identity of the attacker. It is working with the FBI, US intelligence agencies, as well as the broader US government in investigating the breach. Uh, meanwhile, the US Secretary of State, uh, Mike Pompeo, has attributed the breach to Russia after the Washington Post reported, based on multiple sources, that the attackers belong to the Russian Foreign Intelligence Service, the SVR, specifically a group within it known in the cybersecurity community as Cozy Bear. SolarWinds believed, as at 14 December, that less than 18,000 of its customers may have run an infected version of Orion. It provided mitigation advice to around 33,000 uh, what it calls active maintenance customers uh, between uh, people who were active maintenance customers between March and June 2020, as well as after that time. SolarWinds also says it has swiftly released uh, hotfix updates to all customers that it believes will uh, remedy the compromise and has, quote, not seen evidence that they are impacted by sunburst. The company also believes that Orion now meets US federal and state agency cybersecurity requirements. As previously alluded to, the sheer number of affected customers is quite significant. FireEye has found victims from sectors including government, consulting, technology, telecommunications and extractive industries in North America, Europe, Asia and the Middle East. Such is the seriousness of the implications of this attack that CISA issued Emergency Directive 21-01, 
which requires all federal civilian agencies to, quote, disconnect or power down SolarWinds Orion products immediately. Such a directive was issued, um, if you want the law, under the Cybersecurity Act of 2015, specifically Title 44, United States Code, Section 3553, Subsection H, which empowers the Secretary of Homeland Security to do so, and Title 6, USC, Section 655, Subsection 3, which delegates that authority to the CISA Director. Note that for, uh, Title 44, USC, Section 3554, Subsection A, Paragraph 1, B, V, requires federal agencies to comply with an emergency directive. I mean, these statutory triggers alone underline the seriousness of this breach. CISA has also put out alert AA20-352A related to these attacks, stressing that the attackers are, quote, patient, well-resourced and focused, uh, and have, quote, sustained long-duration activity on victim networks, um, which makes sense given the nation-state uh, attribution um, of, uh, of SolarWinds. CISA is investigating other channels used by the attackers separate to Orion. Per Presidential Policy Directive uh, 41, the FBI, CISA, and the U.S. Office of the Director of National Intelligence have formed a Cyber Unified Coordination Group to coordinate the U.S. government's response to the fallout from the breach. The National Security Council is also treating this as a, quote, significant cyber incident, while the U.S. National Security Advisor, Robert O'Brien, had to cut his Europe trip short to help manage the response. Folks, that just tells you um, that the chips are really down here. So folks, what do we take from this hack? Well, firstly, uh, in targeting a major IT vendor with clients spread across multiple sectors and indeed countries, this attack echoes, uh, you could say, the 2017 NotPetya ransomware attack by Unit 74455, aka Sandworm, within the Russian military intelligence agency, the GRU. The threat vector in that case was similarly the update mechanism for a highly popular piece of software, um, m.e.doc, which is an accounting program that was, uh, at the time, almost universally used in Ukraine, uh, given that the initial targets of Sandworm here were in Ukraine. That said, one should note that the motivation behind the NotPetya attack is considered that to cause mass chaos and IT disruption. After all, though seemingly wanting to first target Ukrainian interests, like, you know, the Ukrainian government, uh, the sandworm recklessly allowed NotPetya to spread around the world, uh, including paralyzing the shipping giant Maersk and causing at least 10 billion US dollars in damage all up. This is arguably uh, distinguishable from the present sunburst attack, which the evidence suggests has purely espionage motivations. The allegedly Russian state hackers uh, here do not seem to have used their Trojan to brick uh, target networks or basically render them useless. Its capabilities suggest it to be more a traditional signals intelligence or SIGINT, a gathering tool created by the SVR rather than a destructive tool employed by the GRU, whom evidence highlights to be typically reckless with their targeting, unlike the SVR. 
It is thus curious that President-elect Biden, who was VP, of course, when the Russian and Chinese governments were hacking US networks for traditional SIG-int purposes, sent out a very robust statement which promised to impose, quote, substantial costs on those responsible for such malicious attacks. The United States, as we all know, like any country with a SIGINT capability, especially its Five Eyes uh, colleagues, does similar sorts of espionage which the attackers have done here. It has launched uh, supply chain attacks against adversaries, for instance via the technology companies Juniper or Crypto AG. As detailed in the July edition of this show, hacking is a tool of statecraft. Hacking by nation-states is rather like the boxing match in the first Rocky movie, a war of attrition. You know, it goes on and on. Uh, Not that I'm saying Rocky 1 was a bad movie, except note that the size of the ring, to continue the analogy, can keep changing in the hacking world. One should also note uh, that the targeting of a major vendor to MSPs like SolarWinds strengthens the case that this attack is espionage, since the attackers can use SolarWinds as a springboard to its MSP customers, and in turn the latter as a springboard to their potentially intelligence-rich end clients. Targeting the MSPs, of course, is not new, with CISA, for instance, warning of such activity in 2018. In the same year, the US charged two Chinese government hackers, part of the APT-10 group, with breaching MSPs as a springboard to breaching the MSPs' clients. For the sake of completeness, uh, I note that the President contradicted his own Secretary of State in his traditionally garbled erudition by blaming China for the attack without evidence, as well as downplaying the severity of of the attack. Uh, I just want to note that reportedly this forced the White House staff to stand down plans to issue a statement attributing the attack to Russia officially. This confusion and lack of trust in the US's own agencies uh, can severely undermine the US government's overall response to what is perhaps one of the most serious cyber espionage attacks in its history. Because after all, such a response from a president, no no less, politicizes the response and the attack. As a result, this can all feed the frenzy of Trump supporters that this hack is a bizarre conspiracy of the media or the other side. And sadly, this can play right into the hands of Russian intelligence, uh, which seeks to further divide the American populace on partisan lines, something it has been doing since, you know, the Cold War. If we can move from intelligence to um, organizational cybersecurity, um, I note that the May edition of this podcast explored the complexity of cyber risk and resilience when analyzing the two ransomware attacks suffered by Toll Group this year. The discussion there about how organizations have to own and holistically manage their cyber risk and resilience is arguably relevant to SolarWinds and its compromised customers. What the present uh, attack adds, or say reinforces uh, from that analysis, is the financial dimension of cyber risk and resilience, particularly for technology companies like SolarWinds. That is what happens when the organization gets its cyber risk and resilience wrong. The company here, as above, recognized the financial dimension of system failures, cyber attacks against our systems or against our products or other data security incidents or breaches in its 2020 annual report. As above, 
Orion generates a major revenue stream for SolarWinds. It can be thus unsurprising that the company's share price fell by almost a quarter of its value between the initial Reuters reporting and Tuesday the 15th of December. This is of course in conjunction with the reputational harm to the company, uh, whose products have usually been regarded as reliable, uh, given that it can only be uh, given that the emergency directive can only be issued quote in response to a known or reasonably suspected information security threat, vulnerability or incident that represents a substantial threat to the information security of an agency, that emergency directive from CISA would have exacerbated the reputational harm to SolarWinds. That is, of course, putting to one side the, or the uh, directives effectively banning federal civilian agencies from running Orion products. Even the ratings agency, Moody's, placed SolarWinds' credit rating under review for a possible downgrade in light of the, quote, potential for reputational damage, material loss of customers, a slowdown in business performance, and high remediation and legal costs. And, you know, listeners would uh, understand that a lowering of its credit rating could have arguably worse consequences for SolarWinds than loss of Orion revenues, because it can adversely affect the company's ability to obtain debt financing, perhaps insurance coverage as well, and, in a vicious cycle, uh, only damage further its broader reputation in the market. The company, uh, I keep going back to its annual report, but you know it just seems really prescient now with the benefit of hindsight, said that if we sustain system failures, cyber attacks against our systems or against our products, or other data security incidents or breaches, we could suffer a loss of revenue and increased costs, exposure to significant liability, reputational harm, and other serious negative consequences. Folks, it really brings it home, doesn't it? But anywho, let me know on the socials what y'all make of this breach and the implications. Hi all, Theo here. The next article concerns the new warrants within the Surveillance Legislation Amendment Identifying Disrupt Bill 2020. The Surveillance Legislation Amendment, Identify and Disrupt Bill 2020, henceforth referred to as the Identify and Disrupt Bill, was introduced into the House of Representatives of the Australian Parliament by the Honourable Peter Dudden MP, Minister for Home Affairs, on Thursday the 3rd of December earlier this year. The Identify and Disrupt Bill intends to amend both the Surveillance Devices Act 2004 and the Crimes Act 1914 as well as any associated legislation to supply both the Australian Federal Police and the Australian Criminal Intelligence Commission, henceforth respectively referred to as the AFP and the ACIC, with new law enforcement powers and warrants to combat cybercrime. This segment will focus on the key three warrants that the Identify and Disrupt Bill is prepared to make accessible to the AFP and the ACIC. These warrants include Data Disruption Warrants, network activity warrants, and account takeover warrants. During the Identify and Disrupt Bill's second reading speech on 3 December, Minister Dutton described these warrants as, and I quote, Modern powers that ensure serious criminality targeting Australians is identified and disrupted as resolutely in the online space as it is in the physical world. 
The explanatory memorandum to the Identify and Disrupt Bill specifies, at page 11, paragraph 5, the offences to which these warrants apply, as those that carry a maximum penalty of imprisonment for at least three years. These warrants can therefore function as a large net to catching a multitude of varying cybercriminal activities. However, their main objective is to expose and exact justice on pedophiles and organised crime groups lurking behind the dark web and buying into online child sexual exploitation, henceforth referred to as online CSC. But what is the dark web? And why is it that these three warrants have been selected as our combatants to the scourge of cybercrime? The dark web is a world wide web, where users are anonymised, content may be encrypted, and searches are not indexed, nor are they sorted. It is a recipe that can produce dishes of a disturbing and dangerous nature, plating up privacy and protected impropriety to criminals. It is distinct to the deep web, which is what many listeners may in fact picture the dark web to be. Where the deep web only presents the hard-to-find recesses of regular search engines like Google, such as, say, passwords and legal documentation, the dark web exists in its own domain, inaccessible by the ordinary search engine. Because of the anonymity of its users, and, among other things, the encryption of content, the dark web can be notoriously difficult to police. Peer-to-peer networks, henceforth referred to as P2P networks, are commonplace within the dark web. They function as architects to decentralise passages of information from one computer to another, or more, without requiring the information to travel through a server. Each computer, or rather peer, is independent of the rest, and so where online CSC is being disseminated through organised crime, operating on a P2P network, authorities have to go one by one to eliminate each peer instead of simply shutting down a server. This is just one of many intricacies of the dark web that thwart the efficacy of law enforcement operations and investigations. Amidst a world driven toward heightened online activity by the COVID-19 lockdown periods, the work continues to be cut out for law enforcement authorities. Key findings from both Europol's Internet Organised Crime Threat Assessment or IOPTA for short, and Australia's Centre to Counter Child Exploitation, or ACCCE for short, discovered exponential growth in the online CSE activities and materials. According to an ABC News reporting dated Wednesday the 19th of February 2020, the AFP received 17,000 referrals relating to online CSE material in 2019. Though between April and June this year, the ACCCE found a 63% increase in the downloading of that material through the dark web. The introduction of these warrants could be of monumental importance to delivering to law enforcement authorities their long-needed dominance over the dark web. But enough context. Let's now determine how these warrants intend to achieve dominance over this dark web. First up, data disruption warrants. Data disruption warrants are provided for by the Identify and Disrupt Bill under the proposed addition of a Section 27KC to the Surveillance Devices Act 2004. 
the explanatory memorandum to the Identify and Disrupt Bill, explains that data disruption warrants will allow the AFP and the ACIC to add, copy, delete, or alter data to allow access to and disruption of relevant data in the course of an investigation for the purposes of frustrating the commission of an offence. Per the explanatory memorandum, this would therefore suggest that data disruption warrants could be used by the AFP and the ACIC to remove or alter access to online content suspected on reasonable grounds to be related to an offence being, about to be, or likely to be committed. Minister Dutton further explained during his second reading speech that such data disruption warrants could be of particular use to officers investigating online child sexual abuse and, importantly, the removal of those images to prevent any further dissemination or relating offences. In this sense, data disruption warrants can do more than merely react to existing crimes. For instance, by deleting data, but they can also buy into predictive policing practices. This could be seen where the deletion of data or the alteration of access to data subsequently prevents others from using and disseminating the data. In cases of online CSE material, data disruption warrants could effectively filter out the material from dark web feeds and, by extension, cut off criminals from their source. Such warrants could thus also be of great use to law enforcement when they are unsure of who or what is engaging in cyber criminality. By stopping the flow of data related to the commission of a crime, the AFP and the ACIC could theoretically then stop the resulting flow of illicit activities. But it's almost like trying to keep the flow of water within a cracked dam. You have to be prudent and expect that, at least somewhere, there will be a spillage. And if you hold off long enough, that spillage might create a whole other body of water altogether. What I'm trying to convey here is that data disruption warrants alone are incapable of taking the dark web and all its online CEC material head-on, which is why the Identify and Disrupt Bill also introduces network activity warrants. Network activity warrants could become the bread and butter to future AFP and ACIC operations involving online CEC material. I say this because they go toward the Identify component, as referenced in the Identify and Disrupt Bill, a component which is crucial because you don't know what or whose online criminal activity you are disrupting unless some identification has occurred. While there is a capacity for disruption to occur without identification, I mentioned this just previously in regard to data disruption warrants and predictive policing, the success of this is difficult to quantify without knowing the extent of the disruption. Therefore, network activity warrants are vital to uncovering both the identities of cybercriminals and the scope of their online criminal activity. Not only will network activity warrants allow the AFP and the ACIC to access data in computers, but also access data temporarily linked, stored or transited through devices and even devices disconnected from networks. In fact, per the explanatory memorandum of the Identify and Disrupt Bill, network activity warrants can authorise the AFP and the ACIC to also add, copy, delete or alter data if it is necessary to accessing the relevant data to overcome security features such as 
encryption. Such a warrant is analogous to an American network investigative technique, or a NIT for short. The Federal Bureau of Investigation has used NITs to target and de-anonymize dark web users by planting code on a network server that, when accessed by a dark web user, can generate information such as the user's IP address and what they downloaded. Moreover, the use of a NIT can also extend to accessing computer files, publications, emails and other available data. The aim of a NIT is much the same as that of a network activity warrant, namely, to ease the identification of cybercriminals. Therefore, whether NITs have been effective for the FBI can shed light on whether network activity warrants could be effective here in Australia. In 2015, the FBI launched Operation Pacifier, an investigation into the advertising and distribution of child pornography on a dark web website notably named Playpen. After seizing the computer server that supported Playpen, the FBI, instead of deleting the website, used a NIT to identify about 1,300 IP addresses that subsequently led to the identification and prosecution of about 52 persons involved in the online CSE, as well as the identification and rescue of about 26 child victims. Operation Pacifier tells us that these network activity warrants can be of enormous importance to identifying and thus disrupting online organised crime. Per the explanatory memorandum, we could even expose and identify a person who downloads online CSC material despite having disconnected from the dark web page that hosted that material. Essentially, what we are looking at then is a network server version of a hidden camera peeking into the online practices of dark web users and uncovering their identities. This is an incredibly powerful and useful investigative tool for law enforcement in Australia when attempting to identify who or what is engaging in cases of online CSE. Another powerful tool for law enforcement in Australia could be that of the account takeover warrants. Per the explanatory memorandum, These can enable the AFP or ACIC to take control of a user's online account, as well as prevent said user from continued access to that account. Although it is worth noting here that access to the account must be returned to the user at the expiry of the warrant unless that account itself is unlawful. In practice, an account takeover warrant could enable authorities to obtain control of an account and prevent, say, the continued access to an online CSE forum, and the further dissemination of associated material. The operation of these warrants is simply limited to just that, the taking over and lockdown of accounts. Any additional activities, whether that be accessing data on the account or performing undercover activities by using a false identity, would require separate warrants. Don't let it fool you, though. While it is a rather simple warrant in its aim, Its use can be decisive and lay the foundations to other warrants capable of capturing both known and unknown culprits. Such was the case in the Netherlands from 2016, where Dutch authorities obtained control of the accounts of two suspected administrators of one of the largest dark web markets in Europe, called Hansa. According to a wide reporting from August 2018, 
Hansa had more than 24,000 drug product listings and boasted more than 3,600 drug dealers. The mission for the Dutch authorities, codenamed Operation Bayonet, was to uncover the players involved in the organised cybercrime of these drug product listings. But, as stated by the head of Dutch National High Tech Crime Unit, Mr. Gert Raus, one has to first, and I quote, get rid of the real administrators to become the administrators. Once in control of the accounts of the two suspected administrators, Dutch authorities drew upon powers remarkably parallel to those propositioned by data disruption and network activity warrants. After receiving access to a new network server housing the cybercriminals, the Dutch authorities altered the code of the website so that all passwords entered by users would be logged and visible instead of encrypted with hashes. Note here how this would be an example of the use of a network activity warrant. The Dutch authorities later made use of what would here be attributed to a data disruption warrant. That is, they altered a feature on the website that automatically removed metadata from photos of drugs listed onto the site. This allowed the metadata to instead remain intact and enabled the Dutch authorities to extract geolocation data from the photos. Operation Bayonet was ultimately successful in that it enabled Dutch authorities to uncover at least 10,000 home addresses and the arrest of about a dozen of Hans's leading vendors. With such success in mind, one can now see how all-important these warrants can be, particularly account takeover warrants. So, what key lessons can we take from this? Firstly, the warrants are not intended to be used independent of one another. The explanatory memorandum itself states that the account takeover warrant is designed to support existing powers, such as computer access and controlled operations, and is not designed to be used in isolation. As seen with Operation Bayonet, the combination of such powers can create a formidable AFP and ACIC in the identification of cybercriminals and disruption of cybercrimes. Secondly, these warrants should not be criticised as run-of-the-mill expansions to police powers. They are our much-needed responses to an ongoing and growing presence of cybercrime. Thirdly, we know that these warrants are applicable to indictable offences with a minimum term of three years imprisonment, and we know that their primary purpose is, as I just said before, to combat the ongoing and growing presence of cybercrime, particularly with regard to online CEC material. But a three-year imprisonment term is applicable to a wide array of offences, and so we must ask ourselves whether these powers might one day peek beyond the purview of cybercrime. Fourthly, concerns will no doubt be raised at the prospective dilapidation of the privacy of those in the firing line of these powers. The explanatory memorandum of the Identify and Disrupt Bill notes that, for the most part, the data retrieved by the warrants will be protected by strict safeguards including protections of information retention limitation periods, and restrictions on use as evidence in criminal proceedings. Despite this, concerns are already being voiced across different media outlets 
with suspicions that we are becoming complacent to the watering down of our privacy rights. The balance between our privacy and the expansion of police powers is therefore still stuck within a seesaw debate. Fifthly, and as identified by a Guardian reporting dated 3 December, the current state of the Identify and Disrupt Bill does not provide for merits review of decision-making nor judicial review pursuant to the Administrative Decision Judicial Review Act 1977. What this means is that where an error has been made in the decision-making of awarding and overwatching these warrants, the error will not be subject to review by body independent nor the AAT. However, it will be important to note that avenues would still be available for persons to challenge any unlawful decision-making in the original jurisdiction of both the High Court of Australia and the Federal Court of Australia. Finally, the Identify and Disrupt Bill is still, well, just a bill. It is not law, and, in fact, has been the subject of a referral by Minister Dutton to the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security for the Review. Given this, it is still unclear as to what further concerns could be raised and what changes may be made. And so, I open it to you, the listeners. What would you like to see happen here? So there you have it. Another episode of A Technolegal Update, our tin pot little podcast, dancing at the edges of law and technology, cracked boxed and buried. Thank you all so much for listening. Again, a long episode, but you know, we hope we uh, jam-packed it with the analysis of the issues and the policy that we know you love. And folks, if you have any feedback at all, you know the drill. Please send it to me thick and fast. Um, You can send it to the show at Tech Legal Update on Twitter, at Ravi Rocks uh, with two Ks on Twitter for me. And you can reach out to Theodore via his LinkedIn page. Um, His surname is spelled T-O-T-S-I-S. All of our social media, it's linked to in the show notes um, to make it easier for you folks to check out. And Theodore, look, thank you so much for being such a fantastic guest co-host. I'm sure the audience took many insights away from your analysis in this episode. So, folks, this is naturally the last episode for the year. Um, We will definitely be putting uh, one out in January and one in February. And we look forward to covering the happenings, uh, the goings-on, the vignettes uh, at the intersection of law and technology for those months because as listeners of the show would know, whether it is through their studies or their professional lives, there is no such thing as a slow news month uh, in this context. So, Please stay tuned for that. Alrighty, um, I guess there's nothing further to say apart from folks wishing each and every one of you and your families a very Merry Christmas and a very happy and healthy New Year. Please look after one another. Check that, you know, one another is okay. And of course, follow the local health guidelines wherever you are. You know, the vaccines are being rolled out um, uh, in different countries we are going to hit this thing uh, for six, the same way Yuvraj Singh hit Stuart Broad for six sixes that uh, fateful day. We certainly shall overcome. Folks, keep it together, hang in there, go well, and cheers. Cheers.